Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Last week on the podcast, I talked about the war in Ukraine and how it's impacting health in so many ways beyond the obvious death and awful injuries. Things like deferring usual and routine treatment, environmental issues and so on. I received a lot of feedback after the last podcast, and thank you for the comments, everyone. And I agree, it's depressing. War is awful, but we need to face the facts, really. I mean, don't we? So today, accepting how wretched conflict is, I want to dig a little deeper into the history of battlefield medicine and how war can give rise to revolutionary medical discoveries, many of which have become fundamental to regular practice. Prior to the dawn of modern medicine, war meant countless casualties on and off the battlefield and a great deal of suffering. In fact, it was only at the end of the 18th century that combat generals were persuaded that the wounded should be rescued by healthy soldiers. And the first unit that actually tried to remove the injured during battle was established by Dominique Larey, chief surgeon to Napoleon. Larey also pioneered the use of brancardier or stretcher bearers to remove wounded soldiers from the battlefield, in addition to utilizing the first horse-drawn ambulance wagon. In fact, the word ambulance derives from the French phrase hôpital ambulant or walking hospital. Before the 20th century, the sheer number and type of injuries sustained by soldiers in battle meant that doctors attempting to treat patients were quickly overwhelmed. And of course, the harsh, unhygienic conditions brought about other perils beyond the initial injury. Many conflicts have seen far more deaths arising from war-related diseases than from actual incidents in battle. For instance, the Spanish-American War of 1898, 257 men died in action but two and a half thousand died from typhoid. During the Napoleonic Wars, eight times more British soldiers died from disease than from battle wounds. During the American Civil War in the 1860s, 304,369 troops were reported lost by the Union armies. Those would have been the folks from the North, 186,216 of whom died from disease. That's over 60% as a result of dysentery, diarrhea, typhoid, malaria. Sadly and poignantly, these are diseases that still plague large populations of the developing world today. But of course, we have vaccines for both typhoid and malaria. And as of October 2021, the first malaria vaccine, Mosquirix, was approved for use. Disease and combat mortality data from the past few centuries show a very clear divide. The period spanning from the 1700s to 1918 marks what you might call the disease era, where infectious diseases posed the greatest threat to life during wartime. But from 1918 onwards, the trauma era, combat-related fatalities prevailed. This split marks the point where medical care ceased to be a limiting factor on survival, if you will. It reveals the effects of modern medical developments in fighting wars that were seen from the early 1900s to the present day. While sanitation and general awareness of the role germs play, a great deal of survivability is down to increased medical knowledge and the availability of drugs, equipment, 
as well as new approaches to ways to manage and evacuate the wounded. Of course, technology was also applied to new ways to kill and maim. Faster planes, tanks, all manner of ordnance, chemical warfare, and then the horror show that's the nuclear threat. And a callous approach. Killing a soldier was good, they said, but wounding was even better because you take out not just that one person, but the several people involved in evacuation and treatment. And causing survivable but awful injuries would act as a constant reminder, if you will, some kind of psychological threat to the population of the threat of yet more damage. You know, I lived in the United States for many years where the Great War, the First World War, which turned Europe into a quagmire from 1914 to 18, was reduced to an afternote in the American history books. But that war saw the introduction of the modern triage system, where the massive number of hideous injuries were prioritized based on the urgency or likelihood of success of treatment. The triage system put in place by the Royal Army Medical Corps categorized patients into three groups. The first were the slightly injured, those who didn't need much care and could be treated wherever and whenever, and then continued fighting. The second needed hospital treatment, often close to the front lines. And finally, those deemed beyond help and depending on casualty load may have received little treatment. You know, I remember years ago participating in an exercise, a practice exercise, and the the scenario was that there'd been a plane crash uh, at a local airport and that the plane had had crashed into the terminal and there were lots of injuries. So I was one of the designated uh, location triage officers. They gave me a yellow donkey coat, a yellow hat, and big yellow Wellington boots to wear, all of which were about four sizes too big for me. And it was a blisteringly hot day. And I was walking around uh, these very nice volunteers who all had makeup on. Of course, the makeup was running in the heat. And I ended up being the first casualty because I all but passed out from the heat. But we learned about triage. We learned about the concept of triage. And, you know, those systems are now part of common medical practice. I learned about it in medical school, and it's used in hospitals to prioritize patients depending on the severity of their conditions. It's also used to manage vehicle deployment in civilian as well as military situations. In the First World War, the intensity of fighting required those soldiers who could be returned to duty to be patched up as quickly as possible so that they could return to battle. So this, this, this happened in makeshift medical tents and casualty stations set up near the battle, or frankly, even in the trenches, some of which were run by the Red Cross. The injured were given morphine or opium to cope with their pain, waiting hours or sometimes days to be seen for treatment. And the poor sanitation in the trenches is no secret. Mud, rats, corpses, blood, feces... Often the filth surrounding the soldiers posed a more immediate threat than the enemy on the other side of no man's land. The infamously grotesque trench foot alone killed an estimated 75,000 British soldiers in World War I. And if you want to get a sense of how grim it was, check out Peter Jackson's phenomenal 2018 documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, where old footage was colorized and Voice acting, it was added to give a sense of place and time. It's a really, really powerful film, and I commend it to you. You know, 
If nothing else, these dire circumstances bred innovation. For instance, the introduction of X-ray technology to detect the location of bullets in the body. It greatly aided the innumerable operations carried out during the First World War, saving probably thousands of lives. Marie Curie, who I'm sure you'll all have heard of, actually invented the first radiological car during World War I, a vehicle with an X-ray machine and a darkroom that could be driven to the battlefield to guide surgeries. She nicknamed it Little Curies. She also incorporated a dynamo into the design so that the petrol engine of the vehicle could also power up the X-ray machine. And by the way, another movie hint for you. A 2019 film, Radioactive, documents this and her many other marvellous achievements. It's quite a movie, in my opinion anyway. Additionally, you know, the kind of injuries in World War I led to several other historic medical breakthroughs, such as the widespread use of blood transfusions, a procedure that physicians had been attempting for a couple of hundred years prior to the war, and the new knowledge about bugs, going back to Joseph Lister's germ theory of disease, you know, in the mid-1860s, it inspired the application of antiseptic wound treatment using the Corell-Dakin technique in which a sodium hypochlorite antiseptic was applied to wounds. And that was interspersed with a nurse irrigating the wound, hopefully rendering it sterile. Prior to this, many, many, many died from tissue damage, tissue loss, and the resultant infection. Due to the infrastructure and development, such as the ones I've mentioned, Many more soldiers survived the initial injury, injuries that previously would have been fatal. In fact, by the end of the First World War, around 735,000 British troops had been discharged following major injuries, predominantly due to shell blasts and shrapnel wounds. And in 1915, a young ear, nose and throat doctor from New Zealand, Harold Gillis, was posted to France, having been trained in England. He, he went to university in Cambridge and then medical school at St. Bartholomew's here in London. Here he saw and attended to wounds caused by the modern artillery. Yes, these soldiers survived, but many were severely disfigured. And on returning to Britain, Gillis set up a ward at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot, which is where the British Army were based, specifically to treat facial wounds. And by 1917, he had officially established the Queen's Hospital at Frognall House in Sidcup. And that endeavoured to reconstruct the faces of the injured. Because remember, there's the disease and then there's the dis-ease. You can imagine having been horribly injured and then having to deal with, you know, disgust and fear seen in the faces of civilians who didn't know how to, how to deal with what they were seeing. And it was at that place in Sidcup that Gillis spearheaded the medical practice that's now known as reconstructive plastic surgery. Think about that. Think about the origins of plastic surgery and how it's used today. Limb loss was also very, very common. And the inability at the time to do reconstructive vascular and plastic surgery meant that removing a leg or an arm was the difference between life and death for the soldier. In fact, 42,000 British soldiers underwent amputation. And with so many amputees in the post-war period, it became apparent how difficult life was for so many people as they tried to return to a normal life. Prior to the war, prosthetic limbs had mostly been large, heavy wooden contraptions. But after 1918, functionality was introduced and 
other materials were introduced and walking became easier. Also, the split hook artificial hand that allowed one to grip and move objects meant that amputee laborers could get back to work. While that concept remains, prosthetics today are vastly improved, both functionally and aesthetically. Mind you, amputees suffered with physical and emotional problems such as phantom limb pain and social anxiety. But well, one thing at a time, eh? Nobody won the last war, but the medical services. The increase in knowledge was the sole determinable gain for mankind in what was otherwise a devastating catastrophe. The development of sulfur drugs and penicillin in the 1930s meant that World War II saw antibiotics being introduced to address the infections that were previously a leading cause of death. Today, of course, we've got a very different problem. We've used so many antibiotics, we now have antibiotic resistance, and we're running out of antibiotics. So that's something we've got to take care of. Other major medical breakthroughs that occurred during the Second World War were the first use of dried plasma as well as albumin for resuscitation, metal plates and screws to address bone injuries or tissue loss, and advances in wound treatments and skin grafting procedures. Improvements like these meant that the survival rate for wounded soldiers leapt from 4% in the First World War to 50% in the Second. In fact, these and many other discoveries made in war zones laid the foundations for healthcare today. You will struggle to find a discipline within medicine that did not experience significant progress on the back of these terrible conflicts. Other wars since 1945 have taught us how to better deal with trauma in the so-called golden hour. The debate about whether to treat in situ or evacuate and each new battle led to a new box of tricks for us to treat the sick. Modern war is not about muddy, disease-filled, cold trenches, but civilian terrorism, improvised explosive devices, high-powered sniper rifles and nuclear threats. While chlorine gas may have been replaced by anthrax or napalm, sodium palmitate, by thermobaric weapons as horrible threats, one threat continues to haunt soldiers, civilians and refugees psychological trauma. And let's dig into that a little bit. In the First World War, some of those suffering from shell shock were shot as deserters. I want you to think about that for a minute, because many might have actually suffered traumatic brain injury, an injury that even until fairly recently was considered dubious by some. And why is that? Well, an explosive shockwave can move up many thousands of feet per second, much, much faster than any bullet. Remember, the energy transferred is a result of multiplying the mass of an object by its speed squared. So the faster something goes, that's much more important than what it weighs. But even a room full of air has some degree of mass. Being anywhere near an explosion is akin to being hit over the head with a sledgehammer. So many cases of shell shock almost certainly had physical damage to the brain. And then of course, directly experiencing or witnessing something terrible can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, with resultant depression, anxiety and addiction, to name but a few unpleasant sequelae. Since the First World War, there's been some progress, but understanding the harm war could do to the mind 
led to the United States National Institutes of Mental Health being established. And nowadays, we have a growing awareness of and means to treat PTSD. So what might the future hold? Well, I'd be an idealist and say no more war. And then maybe human ingenuity would drive new developments in medicine and we wouldn't need the battlefield. If we look back on Napoleon's battlefields and to plastic surgeries spawned from soldiers returning from the Battle of the Somme and the physical and mental injuries that even today people still suffer at the cruel hands of war. The evolution we've seen in response to prior conflicts has been awesome and may leave us asking, what will the future of war look like? I think a story about Albert Einstein says it best. You know, he was purportedly asked by friends at a dinner party what new weapons might be employed come World War III. Appalled at the implications, he shook his head. And after several minutes of careful meditation, he said, I don't know what weapons might be used in World War III, but there isn't any doubt what weapons will be used in World War IV. And what are those, a guest asked. Stones and spears, said Einstein. But given the world we live in, I think war is sadly with us for the foreseeable future. And as such, I predict we will see various changes, depending, of course, on one factor. As we try to find ways to save lives, there are others scheming to develop new ways to kill us and maim us. First, warriors will be taken out of the front line for some conflicts, with fighter pilots replaced by unmanned aerial vehicles and robots doing the fighting on the ground. We're already seeing soldiers fitted with monitoring equipment that with the aid of telemedicine can lead to deployment of the means of evacuation by jetpack drones, for instance, as well as utilities built into the uniform to compress pressure points to control bleeding, administer medications, and so on. I think we'll also see further improvements in every branch of medicine, from civilian need being transferred to war zones instead of the other way round. And things like brain-machine interfaces and robotic limbs will serve those who've been injured serving us. After all, it's the least we can do. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time that we have today on the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes on climate change, where we'll be exploring the ways that the environment is affecting global healthcare. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And until next time, please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.